anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. We are in our series entitled Rhythm, and what we've been discussing over the past several weeks is looking at trying to find our rhythm in life, because we've been learning that balance is completely impossible. We always talk about this pursuing this myth of balance, but it's a lot like pursuing Bigfoot. We've heard other people say they have it or have seen it, but yet we've not seen it ourselves or we can't catch them. And no matter how much closer we get, we just we feel like we're getting closer and closer and it becomes a consuming passion, but at the same time it also becomes a means of guilt of why we don't get so many different things done and, and why do we feel so rushed all the time? Because as we've talked about in the scriptures, when Jesus came, he came to die to give us eternal life, but he also came to give us peace. Now, we often talk about having peace with God, but we don't often talk about having peace with man and peace within ourselves. Because we really live this life that is completely compartmentalized. We have our life with God, our life with Jesus, and then there's everyday living that seems to be just completely cut off from the life that God has for us. And that's not how it's to be. All of life is to be under the rule and reign of Christ. Everything in our life, our, our habits, our pursuits, our relationships, our work, are all to be under the headship or lordship of Jesus Christ. Abraham Kuyper, who is a great Dutch theologian, phrased it this way, and I'd like you to see the quote. He says, there is not a square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ would not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. This requires everything in our life. We can't separate and segment our life and say, this is our Christian life, and this is our political life, or this is our, our home life, or this is my work life, or this is my married life. And when we have these different ways that we try to live in each one, not realizing that Christ seeks to be Lord over all of them. So we go to the scripture and we look to the scripture to let it be the umbrella over all of life and how we can place all of life into it. And, and in scripture, this is called the shalom of God. Shalom is a comprehensive term that doesn't just mean peace, but it's peace, wholeness, where this certain peace characterizes all of our lives. So Christ came to die and take on the wrath of God upon himself, but he also showed us how we are to live and direct our lives in submission to him. And we've been seeing that we need to, in essence, not find balance, but our rhythm. How do we move then with the ebbs and flows of life through the different seasons and life stages that we find ourselves? And we know that we're running at a just a, 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 a huge, crazy, busy pace. We're crazy busy. I mean, it's amazing how busy we really are. We never have enough time. I, and, I, and I stop and I contemplate how uh, I've read different periodicals and expressions of journal or journal articles and they say that we were, we're so crazy, we don't have time to have peace, we don't have time to think, it's, it's, it's only going to get worse. And then I read the date of the article, and it's from 1945. And I think, that's the day when we still had the ringer. Remember that? Now it's like, who has time to wait for that? I mean, we are so busy. And then we, we, we feel this huge guilt wash over us that we can't get everything done that we want to do. 
we're pulled in a million different directions, and yet we need to stop and pull back because maybe we're doing it wrong. Maybe we need to reconsider God's way and what God's word says to us and find the proper rhythm. Because when you see someone in rhythm and in step, it's a thing of beauty. When you see those Marines that do the, the, the drills with the, the, the guns, have you ever seen that? Where they flip them and they flip them back and they have to keep it all in, in tune. You know, that's what it's like to be in line with God's word. When we find our place and we continue in rhythm with it, and then it looks beautiful, seamless, and we feel true peace. Now, we've been talking about finding peace in uh, our, just our everyday life. We've talked about it in our prayer lives. We've talked about it in our marriages. We've talked about it with our child rearing. And today we're going to be talking about it in our work. Finding the rhythm and this peace, the shalom in our work and trying to find out about work. And some, like I said before, sometimes we have our Sunday life and we have our everyday life. And I'm reminded of this story of this preacher who uh, was getting on a bus one day. And he, as he was getting on the bus, he paid the fare, and the bus driver gave him his change. And he went and sat back down, and he counted the change, and the bus driver had given him too much. Now let me ask you a question. What would you do at that moment in time? Many of us would say, his mistake. His fault. Would you give it back, or would you hold on to it? This pastor, being an honest man, he says, wait a minute, I have too much. So he goes back to the bus driver and he goes, here, you gave me too much change. And he goes, pastor, I know who you are. He said, yesterday I was at your church and you preached about honesty. And I was to see if you were really the real deal. Just a very small thing, these little small tests. And it turns out he was. Now, he was doing what uh, the, it, it's termed in Latin called quorum deo. Quorum deo. What that means is, is living before the face of God. Understanding that all of life is lived before the very face of God, and we're not here one way with our Christian friends, or we're here another way with our, our work friends. We are the same always because we are living life before the very face of God. So today we're going to be talking about pursuing quorum Deo, living all of life before God's face, and conducting ourselves with integrity and character. D.L. Moody once said that character is who you are in the dark. It's very true. It's easy to be one way in front of people. It's far different to be the same way in all of our dealings. So that's what we're seeking to do, is be who we are, where we are, as we are living life before the very face of God, and we're going to be talking about our work so we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and let me give you a bit of a background before we really jump into our text. Paul has written to the church at Thessaloniki, which is in Greece, and he had been talking about the coming of Christ. And like many people, they thought, if Jesus is coming, then I don't need to work. <laughs> Why go to work when Jesus is coming? So let's sit back, enjoy it, and let's do this thing. And Paul says, no. Jesus' coming is imminent, but you don't know when that's going to be, and God's time is different than ours, so you need to be conducting yourselves as good stewards until the moment that Jesus comes. So in other words, you need to be living your life this way in your work. So he's showing them and writing them how they are to live before Jesus comes again. In other words, this is how you are to find your rhythm. 
This is how you are to live until Jesus comes again in terms of your work. But before we go any further, let's ask God's blessing on our message time. Father, we want your words. We want you to speak to us and show us how we are to live lives before your face. Lord, uh, I know that many are struggling in their jobs. They're, they're not satisfied in them or they're, they feel like they're underpaid or, Lord, they just are struggling. Or maybe they've, they've lost their job or they're wondering about what's going to happen to their job. And, uh, Lord, I do pray for peace. I pray for wisdom. I pray for your presence upon each individual that is working right now. And I pray that you might touch them and use them and let them know that you are there in the midst of this, and that no matter what happens, they can pursue you uh, and live their life before your face with all integrity and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump right in, and I, I want us to get an idea, first of all, if we're going to look at work, where it began. We're going to be talking about how we are to be within our work, and then we're going to see how we can, um, how we should be living our work. And living and doing our work as we keep our eye on the coming of Christ, while at the same time being good stewards and in, in integrity in how we conduct our everyday work. Now, let's start with the first question. Where did work come from? Now, I remember sitting in class when I was at seminary, Gordon Conwell, with Dr. David Wells. He's a prolific author. And he asked the question to our seminary class, will there be work in heaven? And I responded with no. I said, because then it wouldn't be heaven. And he looked at me and smiled, because this is that type of smile that a professor gets when he looks at you and goes, you don't know anything. He goes, there will be work in heaven, and you will sorely be disappointed. And my jaw, jaw dropped and made me want to go to the scripture and say, what are you talking about? Because if there's work, it's not heaven. And as I looked within the scriptures, and I did see that there is, within the scriptures, work especially in heaven. Revelation 22 says that we shall be serving the king. We will be also reigning with him. In the book of Micah and in the book of Joel, it talks about us beating our swords into plowshares. So there's the, under, there's the concept of work, of cultivation going on now. So we need to understand that work did not come as a result of the fall. Many of us think, Work, like everything else that's bad in our life, came as a result of the fall. No, we see in the book of Genesis chapter 2 that God himself created work. I think we have that scripture for us. Can we call that up there, Carl? Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And I thought, I, when I read that, I had to make sure that it was in the right place in my Bible because I wanted to make sure that it came before Genesis chapter 3 and not after it because Genesis chapter 3 is the, the fall, the fall of man. So I thought work came as a result of the fall. No, God made work before the fall. So we need to understand, first of all, that God created work. That's number one in your notes. God created work. Now, I know many of you are already angry <laughs> that God created work. But God did. He created work. And, and we have to understand, first of all, that it involves a command. He commands us to work. He had commanded Adam to go and work. And we also see Paul talking about that in verse chapter 6. Now, we command you, 
brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. So Paul is commanding them to follow the tradition that they'd received um, from the apostles. And the apostles were simply doing what the scripture had said, that God had commanded man to work. So we see that it involves a command. Now, this is where this next point is why you hate your job. Many of you do. I'm not going to ask you just in case your boss is here. All right? But we have a command, and then we have Genesis 3. And what happens in Genesis 3? We have the fall, and God gives a consequence for their action. And what is one of the consequences for the fall? Work is going to be hard. So in essence, we have God creating it. It's a command, but it's also under the curse. It's under the curse. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. And Adam said, and to Adam he said, excuse me, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring it forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Not the most encouraging scripture that you will read this week. It's basically, it's a metaphor for saying that it's going to be hard. Work now is going to be painful, it's going to be tedious, there's going to be thorns and thistles, it's going to be hard, back-breaking work, and you're going to be doing it until the day you die. That doesn't encourage any of you that are facing retirement. But it is, it involves work. So we see that there is a curse that is involved. Now, we also see that it requires commitment. It requires commitment. We can see Paul talking about that. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate or mimic us because we were not idle when, when we were with you, uh, nor did we eat anyone's bread without pay, but with toil and labor we worked night and day. Night and day. Meaning that it's going to take commitment. It's going to take time. And he's saying that you're going to have to be committed to making your work and doing it well. And he gives a warning. What he's doing is he's also warning those who refuse to work. Now, it's interesting. The word idle there in Greek literally means not almost, it's out of order, like out of rhythm. For those people that are not working and refuse to work, they are out of rhythm with God's word and his appointed order. And he says, stay away from those who refuse to work. Don't cater to them. Don't give them money because they're refusing to work. And it's, it's, it's very harsh language that's there. He's saying you need to be committed to work. You also need to understand that work is a calling. He's a calling. Now, this is something that many of us probably aren't familiar with. We've heard about the call to ministry. But what about being a call to being a garbage man? Or being, having a calling to your occupation, whatever it is. You know, work is a calling itself. And it's a holy calling in whatever way that you, whatever job that you do, if you do so to the glory of God. 
Because, see, to make it sound like pastors are just called to be um, to any type of ministry without saying someone else is not called, it makes one person as if they're holier and going to receive more reward than this person. That's not true. In Scripture, you see us all having different callings, and we're to be faithful in the callings that we have been we have received. Now, we have many different people within church history that have talked about this fact. This is Francis Schaeffer. One thing you should very definitely have in mind, that is that a ministry such as teaching the Bible in a college is no higher calling intrinsically than being a businessman or doing something else. Or let's see someone else, Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation. The works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. William Tyndale, who is the uh, first man to translate the scripture into English from the Hebrew and the Greek, was martyred for doing so, said, If our desire is our please, is to, supposed to be to please God, pouring water, washing dishes, cobbling shoes, and preaching the word is all one. Or William Perkins, who is another great theologian from that period of time, polishing shoes is a sanctified and holy act, he added. The action of a shepherd in keeping sheep performed as I have said it is as good a work before God as is the action of a judge giving sentence or of a magistrate in ruling or a minister in preaching. And then last of all, Bishop Thomas, um, can't really get all that there, but I think it's Beeson. Our Savior Jesus Christ was a carpenter. His apostles were fishermen. St. Paul was a tent maker. His, his point was, is that you need to see your work as a holy task. Now, it's interesting. When Adam had been appointed to be the head of all creation, God brought all the animals to him to see what he would do what with. Do you remember? Name them. He was to ex- exercise dominion over the culture as it was. And part of that was by naming it and identifying for what it was. When you do your work, when you become a master of your work and know all about it, you are glorifying God by doing it. Now you look at your work in a whole different light, don't you? Now you're angry with me because you must actually pay attention at work. But it's true. That is one aspect of Christ-likeness is to be doing our work for the glory of God. And that means, in essence, uh, having dominion over our work and doing it well and pursuing it so that other people might see Jesus in us. That's why it's holy. Now let me ask you a question. What do the people you work with, what would they say about Jesus by looking at you? You are the only Bible that some people will ever read. Do they see Jesus in you? That's the question we must ask ourselves. Now, obviously, we, we ask, God did create work, but it has a practical application where we're doing it to earn our wages. We're earning our wages, but there's a point in earning our wages. Now, there's three Uh, that's just the first and most obvious one is to be providing for our family. Providing for our family. 
so that we may not be a burden. Paul even says that. We don't want to be a burden upon any of you, so we want to be able to do this and work for ourselves. We didn't eat anyone's bread without pay, but with toil and labor we work night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, as he's talking about the church, that they are working, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For when we were with you, we would give you this command. This is how serious this is. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Eat. I mean, this is serious business, God's saying. I mean, I, and I, I'm amazed at how we have compartmentalized this. We can say, oh, I love Jesus, and I'm not going to go get a job. You are sinning against God if you have the ability to go do it, and you don't. And you become asking other people to help you. They are then enabling that behavior. They're to cut that off. Now, it seems cruel, but that's what the Scripture says to do. It's this tough love here. He says, not, let him not even eat until he is basically ashamed of his action and he realizes that he's not just affecting himself, but the body. Now, Paul is very, 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 I mean, he doesn't spare anything when he talks about this. Matter of fact, we see this again brought out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when Paul says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, he doesn't play around. This is not the tolerant, touchy-feely things that we like to feel just encourage and makes me happy all the time. He's saying, you're worse than an unbeliever. I mean, that's bad. Unbelievers are under the judgment of Almighty God because of their sin. And he's saying, you are a step lower than that. Because you're denying the faith. Because the faith is saying that we are working to the benefit of other people and that we, we glorify God, but how we glorify God is seen in our horizontal relationships, especially with those of our family. Now, let me add a caveat here. Paul is not saying that you allow someone to stay in prolonged adolescence. That's not what he's saying here. That is not what he means. He's referring here to the older people of your family that have become infirm and can't take care of themselves. He's not talking about your 28-year-old son who refuses to get a job, is blogging and playing, you know, War of Warcraft all day long with his Star Wars sheets. Okay? That's not who it's referring to. That guy needs a kick in the rear and out the door. He does. He needs to get grow up. We, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. And it's, it's us going, oh, you don't understand what he's been through. Really? We don't have really a clue of what it's really like to really stress out. Do you know that? I was watching a special last night on the Dust Bowl in the Great Depression. You want to get woken up to the reality of suffering? Pay attention to that. People not having any, any crops for four years. People having a storm come that's so massive, with filled with dust, that they have to put wet cur- um, blankets over their, their uh, windows just to keep the dirt out, and they have to put masks over their face, and their children are dying from it. They don't have food. I mean, one man was so, uh, a storm came upon him, he crawled to his neighbor to see if his daughter was there. See if she was safe. We don't know what it's like. We really don't. 
when we can go to the refrigerator, when we can have all of these government programs that are giving things to us, we are, we are developing a culture of people that don't have any responsibility for themselves. Now, I'm not saying we don't help people. That's not what I'm saying. We are to help people. We're to come alongside people. But as far as it depends on us, we need to be exercising responsibility and working and to be known by our industry, laboring intently so that people might see Jesus in us. Now, obviously, as which I've already talked about, and this one probably is much more important than even providing for our family, the second reason for earning our wages is to be propagating our faith. Propagating our faith. To making sure that people see Jesus in us and in our workplaces. We need to make sure that we are propagating our faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12 says this, that we are to aspire to live quietly. I'm still working on this one. To live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. This doesn't mean you can't have a job where you're using your mind. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on, Upon no one. He comes up again in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. Bond servants. He's referring to those who are within the realm and the, the uh, realm of slavery. Slavery was an institution, and, and Paul doesn't speak against it as removing an institution because it was so ingrained within the society as it were. But you see slavery on its way out in Scripture, and Paul even says, to, uh, as he's writing to Onesimus, uh, and, or writing to Philemon about Onesimus, that he should even try to get his freedom if he should. But if you find yourself as a slave, bondservant, this is how you are to be in your position. He says, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. You know what that means? It means that when you're, you're cleaning and then the boss shows up and you clean harder. Right? You ever done that? You start, when you hear that the boss is there from corporate, suddenly everybody's, oh, i got to work a little harder. No, he's saying not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In other words, you're living it before, the, before God, not before men. God is the standard that, above everything else. Coram Deo, living before the very face of God. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Serving the Lord Christ. So it means that we are making the name of Jesus known that when people look at us, they see our integrity and they see what we stand for. And that's far weightier than anything else that we do. So lastly, we, I mean, we see, first of all, that it's to be providing for our family, propagating the faith. And last, lastly, and this is definitely last, although many of us put it ahead, personal fulfillment. Personal fulfillment. Now, God's created us to work, and we should be, in a, hopefully, in a position or a place where we can be fulfilled in our job. And if we, we cannot, then we probably need to look for another job. But we need to be responsible in finding... Uh, until we find that position, to be doing it our best to the glory of God. And it should be last in our list, not first. I know many people that have put it first to the point where I don't like that job, and yet their family's suffering 
completely because of it. You're to be providing with your, for, your, with, for your family, whether you like your job or not. It's called responsibility. You do what you got to do to provide and take care of your family. Personal fulfillment. Now, but how do we work for the Lord? And how do we find our rhythm in it? We go to the scripture to make sure that we are working in God's way. Working in God's way. Now, what does that mean? How do we work God's way? Well, I hear some things that I, I want us to see. First of all, we need to make sure that we are honoring God as we live our lives, and we do so in our seasons. Now, we've been talking about two types of time in this series. Chronos time, which is repeatable, cyclical time. Um, and then we have Kairos time. These are the t- moments that we have to seize when they're before us. So one is quantity time. The other one is quality time. This one says three hours. This one says it was an amazing time that, that, that I enjoyed it so much that it's hard to believe the time went by that fast. It's Kairos. This is Kronos and this is Kairos. So in Kronos we have our seasons that we go through day in and day out. We've talked about this is sometimes you have off-season at your work where everything is kind of a lull. And then you have the preseason where things start to gear up. And then you get into the season and then you have playoffs, and then you go back into the off-season again. Like for an accountant, for example, when is their, their season begin? January 1st. The accountant's like, January 1st. When is it over? April 15th, 16th, depends on how your clients were. But that's their, that's their, I mean, their season starts ramping up in January 1st, and then playoffs, I mean, probably start right in the month of April. Uh, when it's really getting really high. And then it's, after that, it's kind of the off season. There's this lull period. And we all have those ebbs and flows in our work when it becomes a little bit more busy, when it starts to, to crescend, you know, decrescendo and then crescendos up again. So we need to make sure that we can recognize those seasons of life that are, we're going through day in and day out. Now, if we're to capture these seasons, we need to remember a few different principles as we're doing this. Make sure that we are busy at work. Make sure we are being busy at our work. Now, I'm not saying busy body, as Paul says. He says it being busy bodies, but we're being busy, which means we're being laborious. We're doing our job very well. We're being industrious, committing ourselves to it. We're not, we're not uh, stealing time from our employer, but we are making sure that we are doing it well to the glory of God taking advantage of it, doing it with integrity. That's why Paul says in verse 11, For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now, it's interesting. The word for busy body literally means wasting one's labor, not working properly. In other words, meddling, going and doing stuff they weren't weren't supposed to be doing. Do your work and do it well as you're working for the Lord. Not for the company, not for your boss. Do your job for the Lord. That's the first step to rhythm, even if they are unworthy. Daniel was a man of integrity, and he was working for the Babylonian and Persian king who weren't known for their hospitality. And yet he worked heartily for the Lord. Secondly, do your best, and this is more of a practical point, to make sure that you are establishing boundaries. Establishing boundaries. In our world, it's easy to take one's work home with them. Try turning the cell phone off. 
put the computer away. I mean, I got to work on this myself. I try to schedule in time with my family. It's easy to say my kids will understand, but eventually they're not going to understand. I look at my own kids and I see how your kids mimic you. Just like the other day, I, my wife said to me, she goes, honey, honey, you need to get outside fast. I go out and I, I look out the door and there's my son with a garden hose and the gas tank open with a garden hose and the gas tank smiling. You know, he's mimicking his father. Um, and after I had a heart attack, I went outside and realized that he didn't actually take the gas cap off. But he was just seeing what he saw daddy do. He was imitating it. And I've seen my kids other, imitating me in other ways. When Eliana was little, she used to set up chairs and preach to them. That's what they used to do. They follow us. But then reality hit home when I see my kids both making laptop computers and doing this on them. Because that's what they saw their dad doing a lot of. So then we have to stop and pull back and say, what am I doing? I don't do it perfectly. I need to work on this myself. But we need to establish those boundaries and take time for our, 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 our spouses and our children. So we need to make sure that we are establishing boundaries. And then next, we need to make sure that we are taking a break. Taking a break. I'm not talking about a 10-minute break at your work. I'm talking about taking a break, taking a day off, which we all need to work on. Where we, and we don't fill it with other stuff. We take a break. There's a reason why God says, work six, rest one. Or take, if you can, take a, a, you know, a vacation, get some time away or sabbatical. And, and we think, well, I can't do it. Too much depends on me. Uh, for those of you that have been around Village very long, you know that we have an executive pastor named Keith Duff. Keith is, uh, I call him the architect, because he constantly has his hands in everything and how it all fits together. Keith is an amazing guy. And uh, at, at, uh, um, at Village, for a pastor, if he's on staff for seven years, he gets a sabbatical. He gets a sabbatical and some time away. Well, Keith just had his sabbatical on February 1st. And we were all looking at the calendar going, is he really going to take it? How's that going to work? Everything goes through Keith. We're all scared that the whole church is going to collapse because Keith was going on sabbatical. And Keith went on sabbatical. And you know what? Church didn't collapse. Matter of fact, things got stronger because people took on more responsibility. They learned to do their job in a better way. And not to say that Keith's not needed. We were welcome when he came back. He came back rejuvenated. He took a break, got his perspective cleared. And then he came back to work in a different way than he had before. And we were stronger because of it. Because, see, when we take that break, we realize something, that things go on without us. We have the tendency to think that if we just step away, the whole thing is going to fall apart. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it needs to. We need to let the, take those breaks. You may not be able to take a sabbatical, but you can take that day off. It's also a reminder to you that God is more important and I'm more dependent upon Him than people are on me. So make sure that we are taking breaks. I can't but help think of S. Truett Cathy. How many of you have ever heard of S. Truett Cathy? You may not know him, but I guarantee that you probably know his restaurant called Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. Um, his story is well known. He opened the first Chick-fil-A in Hatville, Georgia in 1967, and he was committed to building it around five principles. Number one, climb with care and confidence. Number two, create a loyalty effect. 
Number three, never lose a customer. Number four, I love this one, put principles and people ahead of profits. Now, how many businesses say that? And number five, closed on Sunday. Now, on that last principle, Kathy writes, I was not so committed to financial success that I was willing to abandon my principles and priorities. One of the most visible examples of this is our decision to close on Sunday. Our decision to close on Sunday was our way of honoring God and directing our attention to things that mattered more than our business. Now, in our modern world, that is controversial. Think about it. What business would do that? I mean, what's one of the, the days that people eat most out on? Sundays. And yet, on one of the most profitable days, he says, no, we're not going to do that. And Chick-fil-A is the only major fast food restaurant chain to be closed on Sundays, one of the busiest days of the week in the restaurant business. Despite being closed on Sundays, Truett Cathy has led Chick-fil-A on an unparalleled record of 40 consecutive years of sales increases with its core freestanding restaurants achieving higher sales per unit in six days with shorter opening hours than most major chains in the industry. That's phenomenal. Now you're hungry for Chick-fil-A, and it's closed. Okay? It's closed. Go tomorrow. Take time to rest, and God will honor you. So finding rhythm in your work doesn't just mean identifying your personal season of life, but also your life stages. And we've been talking about this on and off. We're all at different life stages. We have, obviously, infant, toddler, adolescent, pre-adolescent, preteen, teen, uh, young adult, married, and then we have child-rearing years, and then we have the empty nest and in retirement, and we're all in different life stages, and it looks different in each life stage. And we need to make sure that we are learning to glorify God in our life stage. Now, what that means is this, and there's, there's not a one-size-fits-all in essence because the life stages are different, but there are principles that transcend your life stage. And I want to give us a few principles uh, and go through these rather, rather quickly. First of all, it's this. We need to remember to keep the Lord before the ladder. Keep the Lord before climbing the corporate ladder. God has priority over all things. So keep the Lord before the ladder, which means you don't sacrifice your integrity. Honor God above all things, and he will honor you. Next, keep your spouse before your success. I've seen so many different men and women will sacrifice their, their marriage in order to get success from a world's perspective. You can have success from a world's perspective and be a complete failure in God's eyes. And God commands you to love your spouse if you have one, if you are blessed with one. Some of you may not think you are blessed with one. The word curse comes to mind. But we're going to look at it as a blessing. Okay? Make sure that you are seeking your spouse before success. Next, keep your children before your career. If you are blessed with kids, keep your children before your career. No cats in the cradle. This is their cats in the cradle principle. All right? Make sure you're keeping your children before your career because a career can be taken from you in a moment. Your children, you have for a long time. Next, after that, and this actually precedes it all. Keep your, keep your character before your check. Keep your character before your check. Your integrity is everything. You take that away, 
and everything becomes measured by numbers, but numbers, but integrity goes beyond a spreadsheet. Integrity gets you influence in ways that you can't possibly comprehend. Joseph was a man of integrity, and he went from the prison to the palace because he kept his integrity. Daniel was a man of integrity, and he ended up being an, an, on, on the uh, cabinet of different kings from different complete countries. That's phenomenal, because they kept their integrity. The reason we have Job as a book is because he held fast to his integrity despite his circumstances that he found himself. So make sure that you are guarding your integrity. You know, there's a, wall, there's a story that Tony Evans tells about a Wall Street broker who had fallen in love with a young lady and began dating her. He was very wealthy, and he had to be careful whom he related to. He didn't want to relate to somebody who would damage him and only come after him for his money. So he had one of his associates hire a private detective to find out everything there was to find out about the lady. He didn't want to make a mistake. He also didn't want to get, want the private eye to know whom he was doing the investigation for, lest the girl find out later and think that he, he had, you know, that he, uh, or that he didn't trust her. So the broker got his associate to hire this private eye and check on this lady without telling the detective who it was that was making the assignment and paying the bill. After a number of weeks, the report came back on the young lady whom the broker was considering. And the report said this, I have investigated this young lady and she has a squeaky clean life, perfect in every detail, no flaws, no known mistakes. She is on the up and up in every possible way. However, there is one little possible blip on the screen of her life. She is often seen around town in the company of a young broker whose dubious business practices and principles are well known. See, the problem, problem just might be you. So you need to make sure that we are keeping ourselves in step. Now, we're to hold on to our integrity in our workplaces. Our testimony depends on it. And that's one other point that I want to bring before our attention, and it's this. Planning isn't bad. And make sure that you are being and planning for retirement. But we need to be exercising responsibility before retirement. Now, what I mean by that is this. Does the Bible talk about retirement? No, it doesn't. And not as we know it. There is a concept in the book of Leviticus for priests where they had so many years they were allowed to serve and then they were done. Um, and we see in the New Testament that there were individuals who became infirmed and needed to move in with family and have the family take care of them. But we do need to plan and be smart with our money so that we can be, number one, a testimony to the glory of God and to take care of our family and ourselves as we get into our older years. Too often I have seen Christians say as if it is a badge of faith that I'm just going to trust God and they don't plan. Planning is not bad. As Patrick Morley wrote, planning is a biblical necessity. Determination without a plan means you can only succeed by accident. Planning, of course, doesn't guarantee success, but failing to plan almost always leads to failure. Now, remember this. Jesus spoke a great deal about money and finances. And if we're to be talking about our work, we're talking about money and finances. So we need to make sure that we are planning for our future so that we can give our time and our funds... Um, and remember, we are stewards over all of them to help take care of ourselves and our children, but also so that we can propagate the name of Jesus Christ and not waste our life or become a burden on anyone else. To be a good steward of everything that we do have. 
So finding our rhythm in our work means we need to make sure that we're having exercising responsibility in the here and now so that when retirement shows up, it's like, what do I do now? Most Christians aren't planning for things like that, and we should be. The Bible talks a great deal about planning and being diligent and industrious, especially in the book of Proverbs. Time and time again, you want to do a study on work? Read the book of Proverbs piece by piece. So we need to make sure that we are exercising responsibility and in, in planning before we do retire so that we can use our life in our later years when we have more time at that life stage to giving God glory, serving Him in a greater capacity so that His name might be made known. Now John Piper, who uh, wrote the book Don't Waste Your Life, and who is, who is passionate about Coram Deo, of placing all our life under the supremacy of Christ for the joy of all peoples, wrote several years ago about making sure that we don't leave a wasted life. He says this, he wrote this in uh, the year 2000. He says, three weeks ago we got word at our church in Minnesota that Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. So these two women had been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80. She'd been single all her life, and she poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. They were driving along when their brakes failed, and the car that they were in went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. And he said, I asked my people the question, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Christ. Two decades after almost all their American counterparts had retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. He goes, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you, as he says to his church, from Reader's Digest, February 2000, page 98. He goes, this is what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. The American dream, come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let the last great work before you give an account to your creator be your last words before you stand before God to say, I collected shells. See my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And he says, and I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. Don't waste your life. It's so short and so precious. He goes, I grew up in a home where my father spent himself as an evangelist to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. And he had one consuming vision, preach the gospel. There was a plaque in our kitchen for all my growing up years. Now it hangs in our living room. I have looked at it almost daily for about 48 years. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ shall last. The consuming passion. See, use your time and your work to make Christ known to take care of your family, but it's also to propagate the faith. That is the most glorious thing that you can do because God has placed you in your workplace to reach your workplace. 
to be a testimony by your actions and your words that God is God. I mean, our work has so many different ramifications. And we need to be working diligently, but making sure that we are taking care of our family is a priority. Because you can do your work well, and your family is a mess. It's taking care of my family, but using my work to do so, and making sure I'm still in communication and loving my family the way that God designs that to be. And that might mean saying no to certain things in our life stage. But keeping the glory of God, keeping our eye on the long-distance prize, and pacing ourselves as we go forward to the glory of God. 